0: Blog Talk Radio. <laughs>
1: Road Radio. I want to thank everyone for listening tonight. Uh all of the folks that are listening live and then all the folks that are going to be listening in the archives over the next uh, weeks, months, years, stuff like that. Uh I wanna remind folks that that we have uh that we have bitten the bullet and we have uh, uh monetized the show so we are hoping to get uh, some revenue, cash <clears throat> from the listeners, and here's how it works. Uh, whenever you go to the show and you go to the show page, uh, <clears throat> I'm going to. Uh, I'm gonna click on it right now so I can see how it looks. It may look different to me because I'm, because I'm looking at it from like a dashboard, but I don't think that it does. Okay. Whenever you're on this page and see, and you're listening to the show, then I'm waiting for it to load. uh, There should be some uh, some ads. Hold on, I'm getting. Getting the feedback from it. There we go. <coughs> There's be, there should be some ads from different uh, uh, advertisers on the page, and uh, what the uh, what the folks at Blog Talk are hoping that you do is that you click on those advertisements and just take a look at them. Okay, that's all you have to do. You don't have to buy anything. All you have to do is click on it. And then uh, and let the page load up. Oh, just a minute. And here we go. And uh, and then every time you do that, then the radio show is going to get a uh, a section, you know, a little piece of the advertising money. Make sure that while you're. Uh, while you're watching this, uh, listening to the show, that you just take a few minutes and click on those ads, uh, and make sure that uh, make sure that you're uh, you know clicking on them every now and then, so that uh, you're taking a look at the ads, and maybe you want to buy something. I don't know. Maybe you want to buy something that they're uh, that they are selling, but uh, and maybe you don't. I don't know. Uh, can you hear the? Sam, can you hear me? Either uh, either break in and let me know, or or somebody. I can hear posted. you just fine, Scout. Okay, because for some bizarre reason, I'm still not showing up on the. Uh, still not showing up here on the on the on the dashboard, on the uh, on the switchboard, or anything. So <clears throat> that's just one of the uh, I guess one another of the wonderful it's about. Uh, that blog talk oh, here we go, there we go, now I just showed up. I just popped in all of a sudden, along with uh, along with a bunch of the other controls that weren't there a minute ago, okay, uh, so that's what I would like you to do when you go to the show page and you're listening to the show. Just kinda hop around. I'm looking at here. there's an ad for a ram uh dodge Ram fifteen hundred truck there is uh, there's some other ads here. Oh, the scion. Uh there is uh, uh a uh, a listing of news stories from Newsmax. And you may wanna uh peruse some of those while you are uh uh watching the show. There's an ad for Corningware. Talk to them and ask them uh if I can if I can make some suggestions for the ads for my page because I think I could get some, I think we could get some better ads than this. But nonetheless, if uh, if you guys, if you're while you're watching the show with your computer, if you will uh, just kind of uh, click around. Uh, I don't think that uh, any of it is only good to click any of the other podcasts that they have. Like they've got a line that says that today's best podcast and it shows different things. Now, you're welcome to, to listen to anything you want, but I don't think that's going to do anything for the show. Uh, but the actual ads, and you know what they look like, you know, they're regular commercial ads. If you click on those, then, yes, then we'll get a a, a tiny uh, percent of of whatever is generated. <coughs> and they will, uh, uh, at some point in the future here and now, they're going to uh, put it into my account. And hopefully, it will help defray the cost of doing the show. Because the show is, it's not free for me to do uh I have to pay a pretty decent amount uh, every month to uh to get on the air and uh and talk to you guys and I hope that the the information and stuff that we're putting out is worthwhile. Uh, okay, now I see something out. Here's a uh, another ad for Stormfall Age of War. Uh, it must be some kind of video game, I guess. We've got uh we've got this uh, uh this uh medieval scantily clad woman in uh in her armor which is not protecting a whole lot of her and uh and then a uh you know an evil dude so uh I don't know what that is, but if you guys will uh just take a few minutes and click around like I said it'll help the show okay, I let you know that uh that we have that uh, Battle Road has uh, several upcoming uh, courses. Uh, the first that I'd like to let you know about is the uh, In the the World as We Know It uh, Zombie Destruction Run and Gun Biathlon. <clears throat> and that's just a a very long title for bi- Biathlon. Biathlon. And uh what it is is a four and a half mile looping trail with eight shooting stations. And then in between the shooting stations are obstacles uh which you'll have to negotiate. And uh, none of the obstacles are designed to break you. They are simply designed to uh to help you test your gear, which is the whole point of the event in the first place. Uh I told you guys before that the reason that we that we began this uh, this event is because for many years now, you know, I've had I've been in, uh, involved with the shooting community and with the prepping community, and and I get folks all the time saying, "Look, you know, I just got this, or I got this piece of gear, or this backpack, or or oh, these mag carriers, or stuff like this." And they're, you know, they I think that they're they're probably really going to work great. And, uh, I'll ask him, I said, well, have you, you know, have you, have you loaded yourself up? Have you put everything on and, you know, and tried to move around in it? And, uh, and a lot of times the answer is no. And they say, well, you know, I, but it's like, it's top of the line gear. And I I usually reply that I'm I'm sure that it is. I'm sure that the gear is great. I'm sure it's probably, you know, very uh, sturdy, very trustworthy gear. but is it right for you? Uh, and do you uh, do you know the right way to wear it uh, in order to access the magazines and still get to your pistol? Or in order to uh, to set it up the right way so that you can say you're wearing a mag carrier and a, your pistol and a backpack. Are you got it set up in the right ways so that you can dump the backpack on, on uh, and still have the mag carrier set up right, or or, or however,
0: <clears throat>
1: and the problem is, is that normally uh, most ranges they don't want you to get all suited up and go to the range. Uh, you, you're gonna freak out some of the other patrons, or uh, are they gonna call homeland security on you? Something like that. And they certainly don't want you to move around in it. You know, they want you to stand in the box, fire one round every uh, five or six seconds, and uh, and don't move around. Don't don't get in any other positions. Just stand there. And this really isn't uh, the best way to figure out if your gear is working for you or not. Uh, because in real life, you you have to move around. Uh, in real life, you've got to get on the ground. You've got to climb over a fence. You've got to uh, uh, crawl under a vehicle or you, you may be shooting uh, uh You know, 30 rounds in in 10 seconds. Uh, And this is all stuff that, that, like I said, most ranges don't want you to do. And we want to give you a chance to do it. We want you to put all your gear on. We want you to uh, try walking a... uh, It's called a run gun, but you don't have to run. Uh, You can just walk. Walk at a good clip, you know. So you get some benefits from it, but... uh, you're going to uh, walk four and a half miles, which is not that far. And during that four and a half mile walk, you're going to engage in eight different shooting scenarios. So, uh, and you'll need to carry everything on you that you're going to need for the whole thing. You're not going to. There's, I guess, you could drag a cart with you, but I don't know how you're going to get the cart over the uh, over the twelve foot wall or anything like that, or or through the uh, underground trench or I'm just not sure. So, anyway, the uh, this is how you'll find out if your gear works and if it's working for you. So, and this is uh, April 11th. Uh, it's right about and it's going to uh, start at 7 a.m. We'll get you guys there, get you all ready. We'll have a briefing at uh, at 8 o'clock, and then we'll start sending the runners out. We'll send runners out uh, like every Uh, between every three and five minutes. That way you're not bogged up. You're not, uh, like, stacked up at places, if we can prevent that. And uh, you'll just go at a, you know, leisurely pace. You'll climb over walls. You'll climb underground. You'll go under barbed wire. You'll go over fences. uh, You'll walk across uh, narrow, uh, handrail-less bridges, uh, things like that. And, like I said, it's all just designed to uh either test your gear, get your heart rate up before you uh start shooting and we want you to see how your shooting skills, stamina, and your gear all really need to uh all really need to work together in order for you to be successful and there's a big difference and walking uh, 25 feet from your car to the range and shooting and walking uh, 2, 3, four miles and shooting. Uh, there really is. And you'll find that out. Uh, and you'll find out the reasons for it while you're here. And uh, <clears throat> I don't know who all are going to be... Uh, who else is going to be here as far as vendors and stuff like that. But we usually have uh, quite a few... Uh, vendors that are here selling gear and stuff like that, and uh, we try and support the local charities, so uh, it's free, you guys are welcome to come uh, out uh, and camp and spend the night. <clears throat> and uh, let's see, anything else? I don't know that there's anything else that uh,
0: uh,
1: about that, but you can go to dot. Uh, battleroadusa.com that's the home page and up the top you see a bunch of links and you, you can hit these I'll be link click on that and uh, that will take you to the hot link where you can sign up uh, for an event <clears throat> that's April 11th now on April 25th and 26th that's Saturday and Sunday we're
0: going to be having a Ghost
1: of Goliad Fundamentals of Rifle marksmanship. uh This is a a two-day course that teaches you the fundamentals of rifle marksmanship. When I say fundamentals, I'm not talking about basics. This isn't a baby course, although you can attend the course without ever having uh, fired a rifle before. We'll be glad to start you off uh, from scratch, but it's not a baby course. This is a fundamentals. We're going to be teaching you uh, all of the... uh, all of these specific things you're going to need uh no matter which or where your shooting path takes you we're going to teach you about uh, the uh the functions of the rifle we're going to teach you about uh the shooting positions we'll teaching you'll teach you a little tiny bit of math by teaching you the uh uh inches minutes and clicks for your rifle that's the uh, that's like the, the magical voodoo stuff of how to uh, uh, adjust the sights on your rifle, what it means when you make a little click on the sight adjustment, how to do that, why, why, why you're doing it. Uh, we'll teach you how to adjust your scopes. We'll teach you how to correctly sight in your rifle. Uh, we'll teach you how to uh, determine what your natural point of aim is and how to shift it onto the target. We will uh, teach you how to shoot in multiple positions while doing magazine changes under the pressure of time constraints. This is a uh, this is a really fantastic course, and it's the least expensive course we run. Uh, Eighty bucks for guys, twenty for women, twenty for kids. Because we want we want you to have the fundamentals. We want you to, to make sure that you are getting the fundamentals a rifle. And we'll be running that on April twenty fifth and twenty sixth. On May 9th, uh Battle Road will be running our fighting shotgun course. And uh listen, this is a really great course. It's just a one day course and it's not that long but uh you know everybody in uh, everybody in Texas has a shotgun. And they're going to use it for home defense, and that's great because it it really is one of the uh, it really is one of the most useful firearms uh, for home defense. But do you really know how to run it? Uh, it uh there's a lot more to it than just that. Yeah, I know how to load it, and I know how to speak the trigger. A little bit more to it. Uh, we want to, be able to teach you. To run your shotgun as efficiently as possible. And, uh, we'll be teaching you how to, uh, uh, how to do, uh, uh, combat reloads, uh, how to get, uh, a good firing speed of, uh, uh, you know, three to five rounds, uh, per second. Uh, and, uh, uh sighting in your shotgun with plugs. Uh we'll do some weapons retention work <clears throat> and a lot more. <clears throat> so be sure and put that on your calendar. Uh May 9th, 2015, fighting shotgun. I was going to say fighting shotgun. On the uh, May 30th, we'll run another two day course for a ghost of Goliath. And then June sixth, we'll have the two day pistol craft and fighting handgun course now this is this is set up as two days pistol craft and fighting handgun I've got it set up so you can register for one or both i mean you can register for uh uh the uh, uh either the fighting handgun by itself or for the uh uh the uh, tactical uh pistol by itself. That way, uh well, we we'll want to make sure that you've taken uh the initial course our like our level one course. We want to make sure that you take of first. So <coughs> uh, and that will be uh, uh that will be June sixth and seventh and then June 27th and 28th we'll run another Ghost of Goliath Fundamentals of Rifle course and uh and that's the uh, the same two-day course that uh that we run uh usually uh, we try to run it monthly the same two-day fundamentals course so and we'd love to have you guys out there <coughs> uh Okay. Uh, make sure that I'm. Uh, make sure I'm giving you the right dates. Yeah. All right. <clears throat> uh, I'll tell you too that we also added a zip line to the uh, zombie biathlon that's going to be one of the new things for this year There uh, is a uh, an 8 second ride across the uh across a uh, stock tank, a body of water, it's not uh it's not deep. And uh <laughs> you will uh, ride across that for 8 seconds just like riding a bull and uh, get from one side to the other.
0: <clears throat>
1: and uh <clears throat> All right. Uh that I think is gonna be very interesting for folks. I'm still a little bit uh uh I'm excited about it. I'm uh I'm hoping everything's gonna work fine with it and uh, I mean I'm sure everything's gonna work fine as far as the uh uh the obstacle being safe and uh, navigable. Uh it is I've tried it over and over, it's great. I'm just always uh, amazed at the different ways that people can uh can goof things up <laughs> for better for want of a better way all right uh let's see we've got uh we've got somebody else on the line here there's a five eight oh number uh are you talking to them Sam yeah he must be uh. What we're gonna talk about tonight is the lead in to the American Revolutionary War. Uh and the reason that I want to to talk about it is we're running right up on that uh right up on that time. Okay. We're going we're running right up on uh, uh that same timeline. Uh this is uh, just a a few short weeks before the events that occurred on April nineteenth, seventeen seventy-five, uh, the the day that our nation started, and uh, I'm uh, I'm always excited about it about it coming up, and I'm I always I'm always hoping that folks. Uh, that folks know or they or they think about it or they remember it, and uh that they are uh, that they're understanding what happened then and why the uh the events that led up to the uh the april nineteenth seventeen seventy five uh battles of Lexington and Concord actually started many years before the the folks who had come to the uh to the colonies uh had come here as uh, to colonize you know they'd come to colonize the New lands and the way that they did that was they would come over and they would uh they would usually work or someone uh who was who was paying their way
0: uh,
1: pay for their uh, uh for their uh, steerage their boats uh, right across and uh, uh and then they would uh, uh they would work for them for a for a certain amount of time and uh to pay their 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 boat surge off and uh and then these the, the uh, well let me let me put it this way: the colonists were working really for england uh they were coming over and they were harvesting the raw materials the raw materials were being sent back to England the money that they were paid for those raw materials would be used to buy the finished goods that the uh, that England was selling to them so they would uh, so they were uh, they were basically establishing consumers you know they they were uh Getting folks over in the in the new world and getting them to harvest uh things timber and uh uh furs and things like that and and then sending them back to England and then England was sending them the finished product of the things that uh, that the uh that the colonists needed there they weren't uh they were discouraged from uh having any actual uh, uh any factories that made stuff and they were discouraged from uh, uh and prohibited from buying from other uh countries. You know, there would be high taxes that would be put out on the uh on the goods and then the uh uh uh, they would, uh, they would charge them, you know, they would, like I said, it would be hobby tax, and, uh, and they would discourage them from buying from other countries. <clears throat> you know, they started a brisk smuggling business <clears throat> it probably continues to this day, but, <clears throat> but they wanted, uh, they wanted the settlers, the colonists, to remain as consumers of finished goods. Uh, this uh, this went on for a long time, and the uh, the British government also, um, pardon me. <coughs> British government colonists to move very far inland now they did this uh they did this in one way uh with treaties with the Indians and then they also uh they just simply would not grant land and they forbid uh, the settlers to move any further inland. The reason for this is because once you once you have moved a certain distance away from uh the the coast then it's no longer feasible for you to get your goods uh, from the from being shipped from England because if it's too far, you'll have to start making your own. And that was not something that the English wanted to see happen. They didn't want the colonists over starting up their own factories and making their own goods and making their own finished products and stuff like that. They wanted them to remain uh, as a consumer base for the uh, the uh, the already running, Factories and uh, well, these weren't actually factories at the time, but they but they they already established uh, merchants in England. One of the main examples was the India Tea Company. At the time, everyone in England was drinking tea. I mean, and then everyone. In America, was drinking tea as well, and they got their tea by way of the
0: uh, East India Company,
1: and uh, <clears throat> the and this started, you know, earlier on in the 17th century. You know, when the Europeans they developed a taste for tea, uh, and the tea that they were importing the tea from China, uh, and uh, and distributing it uh, to the colonies. Now, uh, Parliament gave the East India Tea Company a monopoly on the importation uh, of tea uh, around 1698. And that's when tea became popular in the British colonies, and Parliament sought to eliminate foreign competition by passing an act in 1721 that required colonists to import their tea only from Great Britain. They they established an act, they enacted an act that that the colonists had to buy the tea from East India. Uh, And the East India Company did not export tea to the colonies. By law, the company was required to sell its tea wholesale at auctions in England. And then there, the British firms bought the tea and exported it to the colonies where they resold it to the merchants there in Boston and in uh, Philadelphia, Charleston, New York. Now, until 16, uh, 1767, the East India Company, they paid a uh like an ad valorem tax of about 25% on the tea that they were uh that it imported into Great Britain. And Parliament uh, uh, eventually laid additional taxes on the tea sold for consumption in Britain. These high taxes combined with the fact that the tea imported into Holland was not taxed by the Dutch government meant that Britons and the uh, British Americans could buy smuggled Dutch tea at, uh, at much, much cheaper prices, right? Because the uh, tea that, uh, uh, that was bought in Holland, since it had no additional taxes and stuff on it, they would load it up on ships, bring it to the colonies, sell it, and uh, and make a uh, a large profit. And, the of course, the buyers didn't have to pay nearly as much. Now, the biggest market for this uh, bootleg key was in England. Uh, by the 1760s, the East India Company was losing uh, approximately 400,000 pounds a year to smugglers just in Great Britain, but the Dutch tea was also smuggled into America, into British America, in in vast quantities. So in 1767, in order to help the East India Company compete with the smuggled Dutch tea, Parliament passed the Indemnity Act. Now this lowered the tax on tea consumed in Great Britain and gave the East India Tea Company uh, uh, a refund on the 25% duty on the tea that was re-exported to the colonies. To help offset the loss of the government revenue, Parliament also passed the Townsend Revenue Act of 1767, which levied new taxes, including tea, in the colonies. So instead of solving the smuggling problem, uh, the Townsend duties actually renewed a controversy about Parliament's right to tax the colonies. And here's why, because... <clears throat> As British citizens, they had much, uh, in, the citizens in England and the citizens in, uh, the Americas. British citizens had the right, uh, to be represented by members of parliament, and that is the way that the taxes were set, right? You would be taxed, but uh, in addition to being taxed, you would also have uh, a representative uh in England who would be representing you and uh, that made it uh that made it fair however there's a problem the colonists did not get representatives only the uh, citizens in England did now col- uh, there was a controversy that began uh between Great Britain and the colonies uh in the 1760s when parliament Sought for the first time to impose a, an actually a direct tax on the colonies for the purpose of raising, raising revenues. Now, some colonists uh, uh, in the colonies uh, and these some of the colonists were known as Whigs. They objected to the next to the new tax program, program arguing that it, it was a violation of the British Constitution, which it, it really was. Britons and British Americans agreed that, according to the Constitution, the British subjects could not be taxed without the consent of their elected representatives. In Great Britain, that meant that the taxes could only be leveled by Parliament. The colonists, however, did not elect members of Parliament. So the American Whigs argued that the colonies could not be taxed by Parliament. Since they didn't have, since they didn't elect anybody to Parliament, and then that that body had no legal right to tax him. According to the Whigs, the, the colonists could only be taxed by their own colonial assemblies. So they started some colonial protests, and this resulted in the repeal of the Stamp Act in 1776. But in the 1776 or 1766, in the 1766 Declaratory Act, Parliament continued. To insist that I had the right to legislate for the colonies quote, in all cases, whatsoever. So this became a very sore spot uh, in the Americas because the colonists did not feel that just because they had left England and were were colonizing a new English territory that they that they should lose their right. So when new taxes were levied in the Townshend Revenue Act of uh, 1767, the Whig colonists again responded with protests and boycotts, and they organized a non-importation agreement. And uh, a lot of the colonists pledged to abstain from drinking British tea. Uh, with activists in New England promoting alternatives such as domestic Labrador tea, and of course, smuggling continued at, at, at great speed, especially in New York and Philadelphia, where tea smuggling uh, had always been more extensive than in Boston. But, uh, but as everyone knows, if you make something illegal, whether it's whiskey or uh, illicit drugs or uh, or tea. And you put a big tax on it, or even cigarettes. People are going to smuggle it. They're going to smuggle it to avoid paying that that large tax. Uh, the duty British tea continued to be imported into Boston. However, uh, until pressure from Massachusetts Whigs compelled them to abide by the non-importation agreement. Now, Parliament finally... Uh, notice to the protests and they responded by repealing the Townsend Taxes in 1770 except for the tea duty which uh, Prime Minister Lord North kept to assert the right of taxing the Americans you understand what I'm saying he kept the tea tax as uh, as like a show tax and saying look we're keeping this because I want you to know that we have the right to tax you. So we're going to keep this tax because we want you to know we have this right. Now, the partial repeal of taxes was enough enough to to bring an end to the non-importation movement uh, by the end of October in 1770. From 1771 to 1773, British tea was once again imported into the colonies in fairly significant amounts, with merchants paying the counts in duty of three pence per pound. Boston was the largest colonial importer of legal tea. Now, smugglers still dominated the marketplace in New York and Philadelphia. Uh, okay, that brings us to... The Indemnity Act of 1767. This gave the East India Company a refund of a duty on tea, which was re-exported to the colonies. Now, but but this refund expired in 1772. Parliament passed a new act in 72 that reduced the refund, uh, really leaving only a 10% duty on tea imported to Britain. The act also restored the tea taxes within Britain that had been repealed in 1767. They had left in place a three-pence Townsend duty on the colonies. With a new tax burden driving up the price of British tea, the sales of tea plummeted. Uh, And this is only common knowledge. You raise the price of something significantly, and the sales are going to drop. The company continued to import tea in the Great Britain. However, they they kept importing it without selling a lot of it. So now what's happening is they're they're building up a huge surplus of a product that folks are not buying. Uh, for, for this and other reasons, by the end of 1772, the East India Company, which is one of Britain's most important commercial institutions, a very large company, Uh, they were in a serious financial crisis. They were spending the money going and buying the tea, and bringing it back, but folks weren't buying it. Now they've they've got a product that they are not selling, so they're not getting the money for it. They're having to store it, pay for storage, and it keeps building up. They're they're not getting any uh, uh, revenue from it. Now, uh, eliminating some of the taxes was one obvious solution to the crisis. The East India Company initially sought to have the Townsend duty repealed, but the North Ministry, was uh, they were unwilling to do this because, uh, because by doing so, it could be interpreted as a retreat from Parliament's position that it had the right to tax the colonies. Uh And they were like bulldogs on this. They didn't want to give up the idea that they had the right to tax the colonies. And more importantly, the tax collected from the Townsend Diddy were used to pay the salaries of some of the colonial governors and judges. This was, in fact, the purpose of the Townsend Tax. Now, previously, the officials had been paid by the Colonial Assembly. But Parliament now paid their salaries to keep them dependent on the British government rather than allowing them to be accountable to the colonists. Do you understand how this goes? <clears throat> originally, the officials, the uh, tax collectors, had been paid by the colonial assemblies. Right? That means they do a good job and they do what they're supposed to do. They collect the taxes from the colonies and then they get paid by the colonial assemblies, which was uh, the like the uh, the the de facto government there in the colonies, uh, the local government, the local lower level governments, and uh, so they were. Uh, directly accountable to the colonial assemblies, that now parliament is paying their salaries. This means in order for them to get their paychecks, they need to be doing what the government wants them to do rather than what the colonists want them to do. And, uh, and quite a few times those two things weren't uh, they weren't compatible. Now, another possible solution for reducing the growing mound or mountain of tea in the East India Company warehouses was to sell it cheaply in Europe. And they they did investigate this possibility, but they determined that the tea would simply be whipped back around, and smuggled back into Great Britain, where it would undersell the, the original tax product, right? Because no matter where you would sell it in Brit in uh, in uh Europe, they're just gonna turn around, run it back to the coast, uh sail it across the English Channel and uh put ashore anywhere on uh, on five hundred different landing points off of that tea and sell it at uh smugglers rates and and that still meant that nobody was gonna buy the product that was taxed higher. So what did that leave? that leave that only really left the American colonies if a way could be found to make it cheaper than the smuggled dutch tea that they were getting so the north ministry decided uh okay here's a solution we're going to create the tea act which uh which was actually run by king george uh in may of 1773 this act restored the east india company's full refund on the duty for importing tea into britain it also permitted the company for the first time to export tea to the colonies on its own accord. <clears throat> I mean, they didn't have to bring it into British colonies. They would take it. They could take it directly to the colonies and sell it there. This helps the company reduce costs because now they don't have to uh, they don't have to bring it to England, sell it to a middleman, and who uh, and is then going to uh, sell it somewhere else instead of selling it to the middleman. The company, now, uh, they appointed colonial merchants to receive the tea on consignment. The consignees would then turn around and fill the tea for their commission. So in uh, July of 1773, tea consignees were selected in New York, Philadelphia, Boston, and Charleston. Now, the Tea Act retained the three-pence township duty on tea imported port of the colony. There's still that, that little tiny three-pence uh, duty. And some member, members of the Parliament wanted to eliminate even this tax, arguing arguing that there's there's no reason to provoke another colonial controversy. But the uh, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, William Doddswell, uh, warned Lord North, North that the Americans would not accept the tea if the Townsend duty remained, But North did not want to give up their revenue from the Townsend Act, primarily because it was used to pay the salaries of the colonial officials maintaining the right of taxing the Americans. So that was also a secondary concern. According to the historian Benjamin Larrabee, the stubborn Lord North had unwittingly hammered a nail in the coffin of the old British Empire. So even with the Townsend Duty in effect, the Tea Act would allow the East Indian Company to sell tea more cheaply than they had before, undercutting the prices offered by the smugglers. Uh, but also undercutting the colonial tea importers who paid the taxes and they didn't receive any refunds. So in 1772, legally imported bohia, the most common variety of tea, sold about three shillings. uh, About uh, three shillings per pound. After the tea act, colonial consignees would be able to sell it for two shillings per pound, just under the smugglers' price of two shillings and one penny per pound. Realizing that the payment of the Townsend to duty was politically sensitive, the company hoped to conceal the tax by making arrangements to have it paid either in London once the tea was landed in the colonies, or uh, have the consignees quietly pay the duties after the tea was sold. And the effort to hide the tax from the colonists was was unsuccessful uh, at best because because everybody knew what was going on. Uh, in September of and October of 1773, seven ships carrying East India Company tea were sent to the colony. Four were headed for Boston, one each for New York, Philadelphia, and Charleston. Uh, in the ships were more than 2,000 chests containing nearly uh, a half million pounds of tea. The Americans learned the details of the act while the ships were in route. And opposition began to mount. Whigs, uh, we know that the uh, we know that the uh, uh, the colonists knew about the about the taxes. They were unhappy about the taxes. It wasn't a great big tax. But they were still in uh and, uh and they wanted some kind of resolution to it. So. Stand by one, folks. We'll try to get Scout back on the line here. Yeah, folks, Scott got cut off there. We're going to try and get him back on the line. Stand by for one here, and we'll get back to that lead-in and the resolution on that T-tax business just as quick as we can. So stand by. Okay. Can you hear me now? Now we got you back on, Scott. I don't know what happened. I guess it uh where did where did where did you lose me at? What was I where did what was I talking we about? Lost you it, know, you lost. Uh, searching for resolution of the T Tex problem. Okay. Uh, did I did you hear me talking about the uh, Sons of Liberty? No,
0: you're well, just
1: getting anyway, into that. Anyway the Whigs uh they began calling themselves the Sons of Liberty. And they began uh, a campaign to raise the awareness and uh, and to uh, about the about the and they were what they were trying to do is the same thing that they had done back in 1765 during the Stamp Act crisis. Back then, there was a tax on stamps. Now, for you to get anything done, it's not like today uh, where you can call somebody or or drive something over somewhere or or anything else everything had to be done by posting it if you wanted any type of business done everything had to be posted uh either to another colony to back to uh, to England so there was a stamp tax it means if you wanted to send something somewhere you were going to have to pay a little bit extra for it and this this upset the colonists the same way that the, that they tea the tea tax did because you're getting taxed without the ability to, to say, hey, I don't think this is fair, or I think this is fair, or anything else. You're just going to get taxed. And what they began doing is, uh, is uh, bullying and threatening the distributors uh, during the Stamp Act crisis until they quit their jobs. So nobody would become a stamp distributor and that meant that no stamps were being sold. And they finally said, look, this isn't working, and they repealed the Stamp Act. They were hoping to do the same thing with the Tea Act that they did with the with the Stamp Act. So this protest ended up culminating, which culminated with the Boston Tea Party. It wasn't a dispute about high Uh Like I said earlier, the price of the illegally imported tea actually got reduced by the Tea Act. The protesters were, were really more concerned with a lot of other issues, and what I was saying was that, that everybody has heard the i uh, heard the phrase "no taxation without representation," and that's what we're that's what we teach the kids and stuff like that. Along with the question of the the extent of Parliament's authority to to actually to tax it in the colonies, or what authority they had at all in the colonies. <clears throat> Adams, Samuel Adams, considered the British team monopoly uh, to be, to actually be a a tax. Because if you can't buy tees from somewhere else, then what you have is is a de facto tax. And now to raise the same representation issue, whether or not a tax was applied to it, because it's a monopoly. They're forcing you to buy something that they're making money on. Now, some regard the purpose of the tax program uh, to make the leading officials independent of colonial influence as a dangerous infringement on the colonial rights. Now, this was really, this was especially true in Massachusetts. That was the only colony where the Townsend program had, had really run its full court, had really been implemented.
0: <clears throat>
1: the uh, The merchants there in Boston... Including a lot of them that were smugglers, really played a a very significant role in the in the protest that had begun there, because the Tea Act made legally imported tea cheaper, right? You understand what I'm saying? That the the actual government act that made legally tea uh, legal tea legal imported tea cheaper was had the uh, had the chance. Of putting the smugglers of the Dutch tea out of business, they got the price so low now that now the the guys that were smuggling the Dutch tea uh, were not going to be able to compete with the with the East India with the with the legitimately imported tea. So, uh, and another concern for the merchants was that the Tea act gave the East India Company a complete monopoly on the tea trade, and. It was fear that the government-created monopoly might be extended in the future into other goods. That meant that if they looked at it and they saw that it was doing a great, they were doing a great job with uh, giving East India a monopoly on the tea, then why not do it with something else? Why not do it with glass? Why not do it with paper? Uh, why not do it with other finished goods, linens, things like that? Give the give the importers a monopoly, force the colonists to buy it. And you have you've created a de facto tax, and this was uh, this was something that the colonists were worried about. Uh, south of Boston, uh, from Boston down south, the protesters were pretty successful in compelling the, the key consignees to resign in Charleston. The consignees had been forced to resign by early December, and the unclaimed tea was seized by the custom officials. There were mass protest meetings in Philadelphia. Uh, Rush, Benjamin Rush, uh, urged his countrymen to oppose the landing of the tea because the cargo contained, quote, the seeds of slavery. Uh, that by buying the tea, they were in fact uh, uh, consigning themselves to become slaves of the of the goods uh, of the importers from England. By December, the Philadelphia consignees had resigned, and the tea ships returned to England with the cargo, following a confrontation with the ship's captain. Now, the tea ship that was bound for New York City was delayed by bad weather, and by the time it arrived. The consignees had resigned. That ship also returned to England with the tea, which is a big deal. If you have a ship full of tea and you pay the ship and all these sailors and everybody else to take it on a uh, uh, you know a couple of months journey there and back, that's you've lost a lot of money. Now, in every colony except Massachusetts, protesters were able to forced the tea consignees to resign or return on the tea to England. In Boston, however, Governor Hutchinson was determined to hold his ground, convinced convince the, the, the tea consignees, uh, two of whom were actually his sons, not to back down. So when the tea ship Dartmouth arrived in Boston Harbor uh, in late November, the Whig leader Samuel Adams called for a mass meeting to be held at the uh, uh annual Hall on the on November 29th, and it was a huge meeting. There thousands of people attended this meeting. Uh, so many that they actually had to move the meeting from the hall uh, over to the larger Old South Meeting House, which is a much larger building. The British law required the Dartmouth to unload and pay the duties within 20 days, or Customs officials could confiscate the cargo. Now, at the meeting, they passed a resolution that was introduced by Samuel Adams based on a on kind of a similar set of resolutions uh, that were uh, promulgated earlier in Philadelphia. They urged the captain of the Dartmouth to send the ship back without paying the import duty. Meanwhile, the meeting assigned 25 men to watch the ship and prevent the key, uh including there were a number of chests from the uh Davis and Newman and Company of London from being unloaded. Governor Hutchinson refused to allow the Dartmouth to leave without paying the duty. Now during this time, two more T ships, the Eleanor and the Beaver, arrived in Boston Harbor uh, there was another T ship that was headed for Boston, the William, but they, they encountered a storm and the ship was destroyed before it could reach Boston. On December 16th, the last day of the Dartmouth deadline, about 7,000 people <clears throat> had gathered around the Old South Meeting House. And after they got a report that Governor Hutchinson had again refused to let the ships leave, Adams announced that this meeting can do nothing further to save the country. <clears throat> According to uh, uh, to a story handed down, their Adams' statement was a prearranged signal for the Tea Party to begin. However, the, the, the claim that that what he said was an actual signal, there, there's no really rec- no real record of it from that time period. The, the claim that what he said, this meeting can do nothing further to save the country. Uh, didn't it never? It was never written down. It never appeared in print uh, until nearly a hundred years after the event. So there's a little bit of of question on whether that actually happened or not, or if it's simply uh, it's simply part of the, the the myths of the early colony. Now, in a biography of Adams, written by his great grandson, who apparently uh, misinterpreted. The advice uh, of the or the uh, uh, the story. Now, according to eyewitness counts, people didn't leave the meeting until uh, uh ten or fifteen minutes after Adams' alleged signal. So, and in fact, Adams tried to stop the people from leaving because the meeting wasn't it wasn't over yet. <clears throat> While. While Adams was trying to, like, regain control of the meeting, I told you that that first uh, first Adams announced that the meeting could do nothing further to save the country. Now, once he said that, and of course, you know, there was a lot of people were starting to grumble and growl and, and complain and, and then the meeting was starting to break up. Now Adams were trying to keep the meeting going and and get control of it, but people were just pouring out of the old style meeting house. And, uh, they were heading out to, to what they declared to do was take action. Now, in some cases, this involved, uh, donning what, uh, what apparently was elaborately prepared Mohawk costumes, uh, which included uh disguising their faces, which was very important because uh their protest was illegal. And uh and dressing as Mohawk warriors was really a very specific and symbolic choice. It showed that the Sons of Liberty were identifying with America a- as opposed to their official status as subjects of Great Britain. Now that evening, uh a group of uh between thirty and a hundred men. Uh, there there is uh there is dispute on the number of folks, now a lot of them dressed in the Mohawk warrior disguises, boarded the three vessels and over the course of three hours they dumped three hundred and forty two chests of tea into the water. Uh uh, they think that this was near. Uh, they they wanted to to determine the precise location of Griffin's Wharf, and that's where the ships had been docked. Uh, and they think that uh, it was near the foot of Hutchinson Street, which would be today would be the end of Pearl Street. Now, whether or not uh, whether or not Adams helped plan the Boston Tea Party is, is disputed. But he did immediately work to publicize and defend it. He argued that the Tea Party was not the act of a lawless mob, but was actually a principled, organized protest and the only remaining option that people had to defend their constitutional rights. And you understand why he's doing this, why he's saying this, right? Because if it's seen as uh, as the act, of a lawless mob then then certainly somebody needs a spanking uh, but if it is seen and understood as a principal protest then then that makes it legitimate legit, legitimizes the issues and has to bring them to light okay uh <clears throat> The He was arguing that Tea Party uh, was not the act of the lawless mob. It was instead a principled protest, and the only option that people had to defend their constitutional rights. Now, that's important because when he said constitution, he was referring to the idea that, that all governments have a constitution, whether it's written or not, and that the Constitution of Great Britain – could be interpreted as banning the levying of taxes without representation, which is which is correct. Uh, for example, the Bill of Rights of 1689 established that the long-term taxes could not be levied without Parliament uh, and other precedents said that Parliament must actually represent the people it ruled over in order to count. <clears throat> so... Uh, the uh the Tea Party became a major political act now uh in Britain even the politicians who were considered friends of the colonies were were really shocked and appalled i mean they were uh, they were upset and uh and they were also worried because the the Boston Tea Party was actually uh was an act which actually united the colonies uh in uh in a way that none of the other protests up to that point had uh the other colonies because when it, when you think of uh the colonies I think a lot of people think of it as or they think of New England they think of one group of uh <laughs> my wife's telling go New England they think of uh of one group of people from like Maine to, uh, you know, yeah, you know, all the way down. They think of that as, and that whole area is all filled up and they're all together, but that's not the way it was. Uh, the colonies were all, and had all been separately started. They all had really separate charters. They kind of had uh, separate ideologies. Uh, and up to this point, a lot of them had separate ideas on how. They conducted themselves how a government should be run, what things should be listened to, stuff like that, but this was an act which actually brought them all together and and this worried Parliament <clears throat> The British government felt that because the act was so uh that it was that it was became such a prominent issue that, that they, it, the colonists couldn't remain unpunished. I mean, uh, there something had to be done. There had to be some type of resolution. So what they ended up doing was they decided to close the port of Boston and uh, and then putting in place other laws known as the Coercive Act. Now, they were known as the Coercive Force Act in England However, in America, they were known as the Intolerable Act. Uh, Benjamin Franklin, the destroyed tea must be paid for, right? 90,000 uh, pounds, which at two shillings per pound came to 9,000 pounds or 998,000, uh, approximately 1.7 million U.S. dollars. Uh I'm just uh, Now Robert Murray who was a New York merchant he went to Lord North with three other merchants, and and he actually offered to pay for the losses, but the offer was turned down. Uh, a number of colonists were inspired to carry out similar acts, such as the burning of the Peggy Stewart, which was a uh, another ship. The Boston Tea Party eventually proved to be one of the many reactions that led to the American Revolutionary War. Uh, in his December 17, 1773 entry in his diary, Adams wrote, John Adams, Well, last night, three cargoes of Bohia tea were emptied into the sea. This morning, a man of war sails. This is the most magnificent movement of all. There is a dignity, a majesty, a sublimity, and this last effort of the Patriots that I greatly admire. The people should never rise without doing something to be remembered, something notable and striking. The destruction of the T is so bold, so daring, so firm, intrepid, and inflexible, and it must have so important a consequence and so lasting that I can't but consider it an epoch in history. There was a repeat performance on March 7, 1774, but it it was much less destructive. Now, in February 1775, Britain passed the conciliatory resolution, which ended taxation for any colony that satisfactorily provided for the imperial defense and the upkeep of imperial officers. Tax on tea was repealed with the uh, Taxation of Colonies Act of 1778, uh, part of another parliamentary attempt at conciliation that ended up failing. So, so what do we have from this? <clears throat> John Adams and many other Americans considered tea drinking to be uh, unpatriotic after the Boston Tea Party, and tea drinking in America declined after, uh, up to and after the revolution resulting in a lasting american preference for coffee that's why that's why people drink tea in england and we drink coffee in america the the drinking of tea was considered unpatriotic now uh, according to alfred young who's a, a noted historian the term boston tea party really didn't appear in print until after 1834. Now, before that time, the event was usually referred to as the Destruction of the Tea. That's what it was called, the Destruction of the Tea. Uh, According to Young, uh, American writers were for many years apparently reluctant to celebrate the destruction of property. So the event was really normally ignored in history of the American Revolution. They didn't want to talk about it. They didn't want to... They didn't want to revel in it, but after the 1830s, this kind of began to change, Uh, and uh, they they ended up calling it the Boston Tea Party. Uh, American activists now, uh, from a variety of different political viewpoints, have invoked a tea party as a symbol of protest back in 1973 on the 200th anniversary of the Tea Party. there was a mass meeting at Federal Hall calling for the impeachment of uh, President Nixon. And they protested oil companies and the oil crisis. Afterwards, protesters boarded a replica ship that's in Boston Harbor. They hanged Nixon in effigy and dumped several empty oil drums into the harbor. Uh, in 1998 two conservative congressmen put the uh, federal tax code into a chest marked T they push it into the harbor <laughs> uh, so the Tea party is still uh, it's still there with us and uh, it was one of the uh, It was one of the one of the events and and we're going to we'll tie this uh, we'll tie this in uh, better this coming this next Thursday. We're going to tie this in with uh, the rest of the events that ended up uh, uh, that ended up uh tying in with the the uh, uh the whole series of things which led to uh the events of april nineteenth nineteen seventy five. Okay guys, uh, I just want to remind you that uh, if you're listening to the show, make sure that you're uh you're clicking on the ads. That's gonna help uh, sponsor us. And uh I want to thank everybody for listening tonight. I want to thank uh, uh, Sam, my co-host. I want to thank you for always being here and uh, and for uh, for all of the the work that he does. If, you're, if you hear me talking here, then Sam is here too. So, Sam, thank you, brother. And uh, we'll see you guys uh, next Thursday. And let me tell you this too: we're going to move it to seven thirty because. Uh, with my work, I'm having a real hard time making uh, the hour drive back from uh, uh, from work where I get off to here in time to begin the show at 7. So I think we're going to start at 7.30 from now on. Uh, so thank you guys for listening tonight. We'll see you next uh, Thursday, 7.30 p.m. Central. Until then, uh, God bless and uh, and keep you all.